Our New Testament lesson this morning is from Romans chapter 8. Today we are completing our series in Romans 5 through 8. Next week we'll transition to our summer series working through various psalms. But today we reach the climax of Paul's argument that he began in chapter 5 and he closes here at the end of chapter 8. We're beginning to read in verse 31 through verse 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we hear these words, we ask that you would unite them to faith in our hearts that we would be believing and trust You, and that You would transform our lives as we entrust ourselves to You. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Several years ago, when I was a member of a presbytery uh, in the Tennessee and Mississippi area, there was a minister in our company who uh, had four young children, and his wife was sick with cancer. She endured for many years, but inevitably she died, and she left behind a family obviously very heavy with grief. They were sad, and they were stricken with sadness. The husband's wife immediately was complicated as a pastor of a busy church. He now had four busy children that he also had to attend to, and he had no one to help. And it was grief on top of grief, just recognizing the loss of their mom and of his wife. He was recounting testimony, telling of those days of the hardship that he suffered in that first year, especially of his wife's absence. And he told the story about one phone call that he received that he was very thankful for. Another minister who had lost his wife in the presbytery called. He didn't know him well, but he said to him, he said, Jim, I want you to know that this is not the time to work out your theology. Said, what I want you to do is apply the theology you know. He said it was the best advice he could have received because he knew his theology. He knew what the right answers were. And it was not the time in his life, in the middle of such crisis and suffering and hardship that can happen to each of us in very, very different ways. It was not the time to be creative in theology, it was the time to apply it. And friends, it's an important lesson for us because we all need to drive it down deep into our hearts that in the middle of crisis, 
Yes, we can learn deep and wonderful things, but perhaps the time to prepare for crisis is not to wait for it to strike. But rather, ahead of that, is to understand the love of God. To understand how He embraces our lives and how that fits us to meet any circumstances that we encounter. Certainly, this is the Apostle Paul's perspective. As he speaks to the Roman church and he is convinced that nothing can separate them from the love of God that is revealed in Jesus. And so this morning, what we are looking at is what can we learn now that we can know in the middle of crisis? What do we need to know when we do face hardships? Paul has guaranteed us that this life has sufferings in it. That the fall and its brokenness will impact us in very many ways. And he's saying, but yet there is something greater. And so what can we know in the middle of crisis? And in Romans 8, 31-39, we're going to see three things that we can know in the middle of crisis. And the first is this, is that our future is secure. Look where Paul begins. What then shall we say to these things? He's responding to last week's sermon in the passage from verses 18 through 30, where Paul has laid out the great hope of all creation that God would make all things new, and that God is now working together everything for our good, and that He who called us and predestined us, justified us, will also glorify us. And so he asks the question rhetorically, what can we say This is immeasurable, it's great, it's deep, it's profound. If God is for us, who can be against us? And then verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? And Paul here is reworking our perspective in the middle of hardship and difficulty. He says that how can God, who did not spare His own Son, how will He not also, if you are in His Son, how will He not graciously give you all things? And this all things He refers to, He's speaking of God's new creation. When God takes an old, busted, and broken world that's polluted by sin, the world that we live in, the world where we experience our sufferings, the world in which we die a physical death as well, But then on that great day when God speaks new life into it and recreates everything, raising us from the dead, putting us back into our bodies, putting us over the creation as we were always intended to rule, freeing the creation from what He calls the bondage to decay. This is the future. And He says that God will graciously give those things to us when we are in His Son. That that is the future that is secure. It's secured by Jesus. That inheritance is ours if we are in Him. And friends, in the middle of crisis, this is the kind of certainty and security that we need. That our future is not undetermined. That it is not unknown. That the end of the story has been laid out before us. That it's already sealed that it doesn't depend upon our performance, that it depends upon the performance of Jesus, and that in rising from the dead, you can be sure and certain that your future is a new world where the 
the stain of sin and the scars that sin causes in our world will be healed. During the first year of my marriage, Melissa and I lived in a small town called Clinton, South Carolina. That's C-L-I-N-T-O-N. Clinton, South Carolina. I worked for a local church where we did outreach ministry to the college campus. The locals would correct you, though, because it was not Clinton, it was Clinton. And if you said Clinton, they would immediately say, no, it's Clinton. Slur the T. You don't say the T. They would just tell you. While there, I discovered that Clinton, South Carolina, sat in the middle of a lot of Revolutionary War history. And so during the first year of, of my marriage, I began reading books on Revolutionary War history, books upon books. And so I would take the guys I was discipling, I would hop them in the car with me, and I would take them to a battlefield. It would give us like two hours in the car together to talk about life and the gospel. It became a great tool, and I learned an incredible amount of information about the Revolutionary War, okay? driving around the, the upstate of South Carolina. A few years later, I was reading a book. It's a work of historical fiction by David McCulloch. Some of you may be familiar with it. It's titled 1776. It's a great book. It's a thrilling read. As you read it, you go up and down with the book. You realize that there are a lot of tensions that were happening amongst the, uh, the American generals and army and the Continental Congress, and you just see how perilous this whole enterprise was, the idea of starting a nation and birthing a new country. As I went through the book, I found myself just getting riveted and thrown all over the place emotionally. And, and there is some point in the book where you have to recognize that you know how this works out, Chuck. <laughs> the emotional up and down is a little crazy at this point because you know the end of the story. And that's what Paul is doing to us as well here, is he's convinced of the end of the story. That if God didn't spare his son then He will graciously give you all things. That your future is secure. That it's certain. That it's yours. That the story ends up well. Despite our present sufferings and the pains that we carry, He's reworking our perspective around this secure future. That it's certain. That's the first thing that we can know, we can be sure of in the middle of crisis is Jesus secures our future in a new world that is whole and right and free from the pollution of sin. Second thing we can know is that our case, the case against us, is settled. Look where Paul turns in verse 33. He says, "...who shall bring any charge against God's elect?" It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And Paul here changes the metaphor in his asking of questions, and he moves to the courtroom. And this is the way that the Israelite courtroom worked. Two people who were at odds with one another would bring their case to a judge. It's slightly different than our American context. But two people would come to the judge, and the judge would then rule in favor of one party. That party would be counted to be in the right. They were 
justified. Okay? And so there was typically an accuser and there was a defendant. And the judge would decide between the two as to which one was in the right side, on the right side of things or which one was righteous. And here we have the question being asked, who will bring a charge against God's elect? That is God's people who have been singled out for His favor in Christ Jesus. Who can bring a charge? Who is to condemn them? And then he answers, God is the one who justifies. God is the one who declares someone to be in the right. And friends, our being declared in the right does not hang on anything we do or who we are. That our case is actually handled by someone else. And this is what Paul turns to. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. And what he explains there is that Jesus is the one who stood in the courtroom and He was accused. The name Satan actually means accuser. And Jesus was accused of being involved in sinful flesh. But the problem is, for Satan at least, is that Jesus couldn't rightly be accused. That He stands innocent. And so Satan attempted to pull Jesus down into death to hold Him in, in His domain. And yet, because Jesus was innocent, God evacuated. He evacuates Satan's accusations. He takes them away. And Jesus rises from the dead. He's declared to be in the right. He is the righteous one. And friends, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we share in that verdict. That our case is settled because the verdict has been handled by another. That you can't accomplish this verdict on your own. You just can't do that. We have sins that we carry that would condemn us. The accusations of Satan would be true against us. But Jesus couldn't be held by the accusation. He's risen on our behalf, and our case has been settled by Him. Several years ago, I went to the University of Virginia where I was in a seminar with several other pastors, and there was a sociology professor there named James Hunter. He's a very interesting, accomplished author. And he was talking to us about cultural change and how cultural change happens. Uh, and he was making the point that there's such a thing as social capital, and that you have to have social capital if you're going to promote social change. And so he didn't think everyone was buying into it, and he said, so let me give you an illustration. He said, how many of you have read a bad Christian book that was endorsed by a good Christian author? Everybody in the room raises their hand. He says, why did you read the book? Because it was endorsed by J.I. Packer. You know, it was almost the universal, uh, the universal response because J.I. Packer endorses everything. And, uh, and, and, and many theologians in prominent positions find themselves being asked constantly that they endorse books on the dust cover, and they don't have the time to read all these books. And so sometimes books get endorsed that are not worthy of endorsement. And so the book ends up rising in sales not because of the merits it carries, because it's drafting off the social capital 
the right social capital that belongs to someone else, a distinguished theologian. And friends, this is what's true of us, is that we draft off of Jesus' verdict, that we experience that, that that is ours. And so the case is settled, it's done, it's secure. Jesus is now the one who intercedes for us in the court. And if we are in Him, then the accusations don't stick. He settled the judgment on our behalf. And in the middle of crisis, we deeply need to be affirmed in this truth that the case has been settled. That God is not somehow out to get us, to smite us. Because we can face all kinds of sufferings that convince us of that. But rather, we are to know that God has settled the matter in Jesus. That we are objects of His love. We are not objects of wrath. Because we draft off the social capital of Jesus Christ. And so the case is settled. Now the third and final thing that we can know in the middle of crisis is simply this, that God does not betray us. Paul goes to great lengths in verses 35 through 39 to convince us of this, that our God does not betray us. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Then he quotes from Psalm 44, and he answers, no, Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And all these things and all these sufferings, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. That there's been a past act of love. Jesus not holding His own life sacred to Himself. God not sparing His Son, but Jesus going to the cross on our behalf. We are now more than conquerors in Him that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And Paul, in the previous paragraph, has argued that even the sufferings that we go through, God can use those for our good. Mind you, once again, that he doesn't say that all the sufferings we experience and go through that we endure are good, but that God has the greatness and the power to even use the evil and harmful things that happen in our world for good. That this is His commitment to us. That He is unshakably committed to us. And He is working. That He never betrays us. But this is perhaps the hardest thing for us to believe in the real experiences that we endure in life. John Newton, one of my heroes from one of the great awakenings, he was an English minister. He was a slave trader converted to Christ and then he wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. His hymns are great. His letters that he wrote, the correspondence that we have from him is even better. I encourage you to purchase it. He was writing with Mrs. Wilberforce, who was related to uh, the famous William Wilberforce. She was suffering, and he writes back to her this. Listen carefully to it. He says, Afflictions do us good as they make us more acquainted with what is in our hearts and thereby promote humiliation and self-abasement. 
There are abominations which, like nest of vipers, lie so quietly within that we hardly suspect they are there till the rod of affliction rouses them. Then they hiss and show their venom. Newton cuts to the real fact of what we don't like about afflictions is that they raise issues. They arouse a nest of vipers, he says, in our hearts. They, they bring out and expose deep things, suspicions that we have. And typically, they are suspicions about God. Things that we don't really believe. Things that we don't trust. It comes out in all sorts of ways, but we begin to strike and Newton is saying, no, it's through afflictions that God drives into this nest of vipers that He says they lie quietly within and that God is intent on flushing them out. And so He can use even affliction for His good ends of our sanctification. This is how God is at work in our life. And friends, it is our circumstances that bring out this dynamic. And so with our afflictions, we can resist or we can entrust ourselves to a loving and merciful God, knowing that we can't be separated from His love that's been given to us in Christ, that He settled the verdict, that it's secure, that it's ours, and that God's loving purposes even if we don't understand, and even if His ways are not plain to us, how mysterious they can be, and we all confess that. But trusting that as He guides us through that, and as He shepherds us, as He shepherds us, that His good plans are being worked out for us. Several years ago, I pastored a young couple who had struggled intensely with infertility, and they then turned and they were in a church that did not have a problem with infertility. It was actually rich with young children, which became a very sore subject. And so they adopted a very young, beautiful boy. A wonderful gift to the entire church community. But after the adoption, it was clear that things were not healed. Things were not well. They came to me one Monday following a Sunday service and they said, Chuck, we're going to have to leave the church. He was a significant leader in the congregation, so I asked him, I said, well, what happened? <laughs> he said, well, my, my son was in the Sunday school on, on Sunday during the chapel time, and, um, and the kids put felt in his hair. He's being picked on. He's identified as different because he's adopted, and so we need to leave the church. And so I asked him uh, if there was any other children who were afflicted with the felt, and of course there were, because these are just shenanigans that go on in chapel time, right? Uh, what child has never had felt put in their hair and glue and all these other things? Um, and, but what was plain? What was coming through so clear? He was rightly sensitive for his son. He was trying to be a good father and to care for his son with, um, with immense care. But what came through was just the rawness of the sufferings, of the pain that was still there, the unresolved issues with God over the infertility. 
Not wanting to accept barrenness. Not receiving that from God and still struggling deeply. And wanting to strike out where he could. And there were multiple examples that that multiplied themselves in a very sweet and gentle couple. Some of the best people that I've ever known. But friends, this is what sufferings can do to us. Is it raises a nest of vipers within us. It can bring out the worst. And so what Paul encourages us here is to move into this perspective. This perspective that our God does not betray us. And that He doesn't leave us to our self-pity. And that our sufferings are not to overwhelm us. That they don't separate us from the love of God and that God is using them for our good. And so the task of faith in the middle of suffering is to entrust ourselves to Him. That nothing separates us from the love of God. That the love of God overcomes all this. That our future is secure. That the case is settled. That He will not betray us. And do we believe in that Jesus? Do we entrust ourselves to that love? Or do we have a much more conditional kind of Jesus that we believe in? Friends, we will all face circumstances and situations where it's not a time to do theology. That's just the real rigor of life in a broken world. It's not to be pessimistic. It's just to be honest. That our world is severely broken. It will pinch us in multiple ways. And so the question for us is, will we work that theology out ahead of the pinch? And will we be ready to trust that God and know that He will meet us in that place? And in trusting Him, He's the one that can turn that desert into a bountiful garden of growth in which we give ourselves freely to Him. Let's work out our theology now. Let's look at the depth of this love of God, how He embraces us, and let's be convinced of it. To go into the depth and the height, to know that it surpasses all knowledge, as Paul says in Ephesians 3. That's the God who embraces you. And let's trust Him in the middle of all of our sufferings and all of our pains. Let's pray. Father, we need Your help. We are weak vessels. And when we face suffering and crisis, we know that we're prone to self-pity. We're prone to doubt. We're not convinced of Your goodness nor Your love. We ask that You would help us to know that our future is secure in Jesus. That we would know that our case is settled in Jesus and that You do not betray us because of Jesus. Write these things upon our hearts. Convince us of them that we know how to meet the difficulties of life, trusting and belonging to you. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.